right. Welcome to old school. Jank Uger, Mark Thompson, David Schuster, everybody. Look at wow. this. Hey, hey, you know, I am. This is the first time in old school, and I just want to say, Jank, I am ready to promote your father's book. I, I you know, I'm ready for it. <laughs> okay, look, that's really the only qualification you need. Okay. For this, so good. Check. Nicely Marvel, done. Good. Okay. Um, so, uh, David, of course, is a star of Rebel Headquarters. Uh, check out our uh, channel, RHQ, all over YouTube, Facebook, uh, tyt.com, it doesn't matter. Uh, David's absolutely killing it. So it's it's great to have him here. Um, obviously, formerly of MSNBC, Al Jazeera, and the list goes on. Okay, uh, so uh, Old School brought to you by uh, TwoStrongCoffee.com. Um, so, oh, that's a new mug. Oh, that's not out yet. Oh, I'm gonna hide it. Okay, twostrong.coffee.com <laughs> slash TYT, organic, fair trade, Mark Thompson approved. Yes. But you can't go wrong with it. Yeah, um, I'm a big fan. Yeah, and uh, and our other sponsors, our other made up sponsor, they're both made up sponsors to some degree, uh, is uh, shoptyt.com. Uh, Mark's, uh, as always, sporting that great TYT hat. Uh, love the merch, business. love the merch. I went old school with this. Now I love that this is old school now. I went old school with this shirt. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, you yeah. did. Yeah. Um, I told you I have the um, very stable genius uh, sweatshirt. And I have realized that in certain crowds, no one knows what it actually refers to. <laughs> totally, totally, 100%. So they, they think I'm wearing a uh, shirt that reflects my own vision of myself. You know, it's very funny. Yeah. Which, which it sounds like that could make for more interesting conversations. And that's true too, potentially, yeah. And in fact, I was wearing the, our new shirt, the Anti-Anti-Vaxxer Club. <laughs> uh, and that I one haven't was, seen that one. <laughs> yeah, it's great, it's gold. Because what happens is uh, people pause and then they give you like the squint, which is like, I'm getting ready to be angry I'm squinting to see exactly what your shirt says, and then they go like this. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and you go from the squint to the O, oh, and then uh, tons of people have been like, "Oh, I like that. Uh, where, where you, where'd you get that?" I'm like, sponsor of old school, not a big deal. Shop2it.com. <laughs> um, all right, so let's let's get on to uh, unimportant things. Um, <laughs> David, I want to talk about your life a little bit in a second. Oh, no. uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, but but Mark, uh, while we were about to get on air, uh, brought up that he's part of a wine club, and there's no way I'm not going to hit that and hit it hard. Well, and, uh, and I have to, if you will, allow me. I, it makes it sound like I, uh, you know, Jank, David, I'm part of a wine club. It sounds mm -hmm. like I was dropping it in that way. That's not the way I was saying it. I have crap everywhere related to this wine club that I joined, and so I was always trying to clear a space to begin this. I was saying, you know, I'm part of this wine club. I was saying it almost in an annoyed way. And, but it is funny because this wine club, I've never been part of a wine club before, does send me tons of wine. I guess that's the idea behind a wine club. But <laughs> there is a, a quality of like a sorcerer's apprentice kind of endless stream. The doorbell just keeps ringing and it's one case of wine after another. And I am running out of space in the home to uh, to keep it. And I'm trying to 
slow down the shipments, you know. Um, well, I, I, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're explaining that it has to do with your mess because I thought, Mark, you were bringing it up because maybe you'd had a couple extra glasses tonight and just wanted to tell us in advance <laughs> well, there is um, if you're slurring your speech or whatnot. And that's okay. No judgment. It's all good. Yeah. It's all good. Well, if you want to make it about your space, that's fine. It has been a, uh, I would happily cop to having a cocktail. And actually I would normally in old school, in the old days, in the old, old school, we used to crack beer and they actually would ask you, oh, what kind of beer would you like uh, for the panel on old school tonight? Would you like, and then they'd tell you, we've got a hops this and we've got a that. And it was like all very uh, kind of uh, microbrewery friendly beer. Now it's, you know, COVID. So I'm locked in with case after case of wine. And typically I would have a little uh, taste. But the point is simply, this is a great thing. The idea behind this wine club is that it supports small wineries and vintners oh, around the sure. world. What's that? Oh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, what I'm getting is that I single-handedly am supporting small vintners and uh, wineries around the world. That's what I'm getting. Yeah, uh, it's it's really out of control. And so here's the problem, and and, and then I, and then I'll stop. But I, uh, I I'm kind of being filled with anxiety about my drinking of wine because uh, my girlfriend doesn't drink at all. And I'm going through all this wine. And as I started to like put on weight for COVID, uh, not a lot, I still looked pretty damn good. But I'm just <laughs> saying, uh, but enough that I felt I needed to lose it, I uh, needed to eliminate the wine. And that's hard when you've got wine bottles you know, that you're stepping over on your way to move other wine bottles. And you're the only person in the house drinking. So. I'm trying to cut back on my wine intake, even as the shipments keep arriving. So that's what I'm dealing with uh, now. Yeah, Mark, no, I, I can totally relate. I had the same issue with meth. <laughs> you know, my wife just won't do any. She's like, oh, I like my teeth. Whatever, okay, keep your teeth. It's pretty elitist, but. Well, she's an enabler, because she goes, you know what? The buzzed Mark Thompson is a lot better than the sober Mark Thompson. I, I think you ought to have some wine. It's like, all right. I, all I don't know, Mark. You might you might be due for a, a new girlfriend if you keep uh, drinking alone for for too long. So that's just, just saying. Well, so so David, you you and I have done many stories where you know you do the uh, money and politics angle, and then it turns out Carl Rove's uh, you know. You know, charitable charitable organization has the same PO boxes as political group, and it turns out it's all really the same pack and stuff. I have a sense that we're going to find out about Mark's Wine Club that it has the same <laughs> PO box as the AA in the neighborhood. Uh, right? It's like, feels no, no, no. Just keep sending it to him. No, no, don't eat. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we don't care what he paid for. Just you just sending. think that the you just think that the Mark Thompson Building Fund is really going towards his building. It's actually going for a stash of alcohol. But that's, that's yeah. Okay. It look. The good news is when you kids come visit someday, uh, there'll be wine for you know. There'll be goodie bags to, and they'll be filled with wine. So, <laughs> well, that sounds good. Um, so uh, okay, but the reason I brought it up isn't any of that. And uh, let me out, Mark. Uh, okay, uh, before we got on air, here's how he said he was in the wine club. He's like, "Chops, I do the guy. I really joined a wine club. It's quite spectacular." <laughs> and he had his monocle in. He's now taking it out. Yeah, you know, you know yeah. how this stuff goes. My cravat. Yeah, My cravat. Yes. yes. Okay, uh, no, in, all, in all seriousness, the reason I brought it up, it, well, not in all seriousness, <laughs> barely any seriousness. Yeah. Uh, but the reason I brought it up is because I was curious. So how much wine do you get in a wine club? Uh, you get um, 
I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I almost don't really know. I, they here's <laughs> That's <how it> works. perfect. <laughs> they send you I a case. At some point, but I you lost track. <laughs> Kind of they like my wife and credit cards, you know, they just keep coming and they just keep being spent and you don't really know. And that's the excuse. I don't really know. I just I they keep sending you, them to me. I got to use them. That is so much closer to the truth than I want to admit. Uh, I got I, I really, you know, was cranked up and enthusiastic about joining this wine club. So I think I checked all the boxes for most frequent shipments initially because of my overzealousness. Um, uh, all I'm saying is I'm living now in a in a period of constant shipment, but I'm helping supposedly all these uh, small vintners, and they throw in a bottle per case. So um, you know, that's the best way to get me on anything. If you if I feel like I'm getting a deal, uh, you know, you get a fifty four bottle dollar bottle of wine for free. All right, uh, and and then they do this last thing. They say, did you like that wine? You know, it's in short supply. Can we put you on a list so that, you know, when the new vintage comes out, you'll get it? Because otherwise, you know, it's a very uh, small crop. And I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to get iced out of that. And they give you that, the myth of <laughs> scarcity, you know, that's a very powerful myth. And so yeah. I checked those boxes. So the answer, Jenk, is, you know, literally the doorbell will ring while we're on, and I'm sure it'll be another case of wine. It, it comes quite frequently. Okay. Is there a type of wine, Mark, that you've decided that you really like? I mean, you don't have to give an ad for it, but a particular, I don't know, grape or vintage or style? If it pours into a glass, David, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really about it. I'm all. I, I had a rosé yesterday. I wake up with a Pinot Noir and I go to bed with a Cabernet. What can I say? It's uh, I try to cover the bases. Yeah. <laughs> So I actually uh, you know, do a radio show in San Francisco. And as you know, San Francisco Bay Area, there's a lot of wine in Sonoma County and, and, uh, and also in the South Bay. There's there are actually vineyards all around the Bay Area. And there's one in uh, Livermore. And uh, it's in the East Bay. And I actually uh, made a deal with them because they listen to the show all the time. They'd sent an email for my own wine, the Mark Thompson blend of wine. Okay, I thought it would be a fun thing to do and I'd give it away on the show. So I bought the wine. Like I, It's not like I was looking for a freebie. I bought the wine. It's got uh, the label uh, with my wine. We, this just happened. This is like a, happened like an hour ago type thing. So today was the first day we announced it on the air that we're going to be giving away uh, the wine. And what happens? The program director comes running into the studio. And says, "No, no, no, no! You can't!" I mean, like th he was, uh, his head was exploding. And you know, we cannot give away liquor on the air. We cannot give away any wine on the air. And that's because of FCC regulations. You see. And so now, in addition to all the wine that I have in my wine club, I have cases of the Mark Thompson wine that I now cannot give away on the air. So I'm telling you, boys, I am hip deep in wine of all sorts. My own wine, other vintners' wine. It's it's an absolute uh, tsunami of wine in my life. <laughs> yeah, um, tr Trump is also uh, filled to the room with wine, but the other wine. Mm. Uh, so it's uh, maybe he joined a club. Maybe that's what happened. We didn't realize it. He just <laughs> keeps getting wine, right? Club, yeah. And he's like, I, I, I won, but why did I won't say I won? They say, oh, oh, it's a free bottle. Okay, all right, and right, and oh, my attorney general, uh, he was not very strong. Uh, <laughs> uh, like what? 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 I, I wasn't supposed to execute my vice president. Uh, <laughs> He, I mean, these guys. Anyway, um, so Mark, I love uh, what a sucker you are for that. Oh, this thing's gonna run out, man. I mean, 
we oh, make yeah. it professionally for a living, but it's on the edge of running out. And you're like, hey, look, I'm on the edge with Mark Thompson. So, oh, <laughs> that's good. I do a podcast called The Edge with Mark Thompson. Very good. <laughs> okay. So, Mark, you know, at Too Strong Coffee, I mean, there's, we put an extra couple of beans in in each bag. <laughs> And we're about to run out. You know okay. a mark when you see one. Mark's a mark. Yeah. It's a, it's last thing. And guys, I think you know this is the point to the uh, to those who are sharing this time with us. I think you can be really smart about some of the big picture stuff. Like I feel like I'm pretty smart on some big picture stuff and appropriately cynical when it comes to politics and it comes to public policy. And somehow you can be just so myopic and completely naive when it comes to other things. Like what we've talked about here so far, and you know, checking too many boxes, and you know, earnestly feeling as though you're you're helping along this wine club or whatever it is, and I don't know. It's, yeah. Uh, so no, and yeah. by the way, it's it's not always BS. So like, uh, it, when I tell the audience it's time to panic, they really should panic. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> seriously, I don't say that unless. There really is a limited quantity, right? So, like Mark's hat, we we were giving it away for members, not giving it away, but we're selling. But it had member on the back, and we're so cheap, we really did a limited run, and they really did run out, right? And so, uh, and so that definitely happens. These mugs, they they're uh, like, and it's true that like, hey, ours is the too strong coffee is organic and fair trade, and so when that uh, your wine club tells you there, it's actually. Local wineries or small wineries. I hope to God they're not lying. Is that 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 mo that most of the time is true and that is great and you should care about that, right? Uh, it's just when they s s generically say, "All right, limited quantity." I don't know if it'll still be around. <laughs> right? Well, I just did this on a plane flight last night. It says only four tickets left at this price. And they go, oh man, only four tickets left. I mean, should we book this now? I know we're not sure we're gonna take the trip, but they said there are only four tickets left. I mean, you're- It works every time, it works well, every Forgive time. me if I sound like an East Coast guy who's sort of out of it, but um, didn't a lot of the wineries burn down in the fires uh, a year ago, two years ago? Not a lot of them, but some of them. That's that's not, uh, you know, that's, that's a totally appropriate uh, point. I mean, it's been a very tough couple of years in Sonoma County in the North Bay. And uh, yeah, it's it's been very, very difficult. So no, you're right. and. Honestly, I mean, they're threatened this year. I mean, the fire season, as you know, is longer and hotter and more intense uh, than ever. And uh, so, yeah. yeah, I think it's a. It's well, then, worth given the risk of the business and what a difficult business it is, you know, I, I, Mark, I think people should forgive you if you're a bit myopic and a bit too trusting of the, the wineries. And and hopefully, they are really small wineries and they really do need the help. And sure, I guess there's a room to be pessimistic about everything in life. But you know. I, yeah, and you know the truth is that the vintners write back to you. Like if you write a positive review, they write back to you. So they're not so big that they're not, you know. Uh, no, no, I believe that. I maybe yeah, I'm a sucker too, but I, yeah, maybe I'm a sucker too, but I believe that. And so, like for example, no joke, this mug's coming out soon. It's not, it's, it's not out yet. It, but you still get coffee and everything else at twostrongcoffee.com/uat. But these are handmade. They're made in America, and it's from a. Really progressive woman, uh, and she's an awesome small business owner that's super progressive. So it's true, things like that do happen, right? And so, and it's great to support those businesses. And that's really why Mark's doing it. He's not even interested in wine, he's just trying to help. <laughs> that's why he's going through a couple of bottles a night because he's really, really charitable, trying to help.
Okay. Uh, you know, when I was at the doctor's office, not to make this all about wine, but they said, well, so uh, uh, do you drink? I said, yeah, I'll drink, I'll have some wine. Well, um, how many glasses of wine do you have? Like um, one glass a day or, um, and I said, well, yeah, like one glass a day. Like, but wait, how big is that glass? I mean, in my, I have a really, really big glass so once a day. I was, I was drinking at the height of the uh, pandemic. I was drinking a bottle a day. Now, some people may not think that's a lot, but I'm really, when you're the, and you just sit there and you drink, it just happens. It just absolutely just happens. happens. Yeah. yeah. Same thing with me, right? I mean, you do one line and then next thing you know, you're doing eight <laughs> lines, right? <laughs> Look, I backed off everybody, okay? This is my post uh, problem confession. I, 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 I found my way out of the wilderness, so. Yeah. So uh, somebody the other day was trying to talk me into shrooms and then even acid, right? I was like, <laughs> guys. The degree to which I am sky high on edibles is indescribable, right? Now, what do you think I look like on acid? Okay. <laughs> so I'm like, no, no, we're not going in that direction. Okay. Uh, so that's why I joined the Shrooms Club. It's all <laughs> local. <laughs> Jake, in all seriousness, what was what was your vice that got you through the pandemic and the lockdowns and the the mindlessness of everything? And I mean, you know, all of us had our own vice or our own little sort of thing we did. Whatever. What was yours? Okay, that's a great question. Um, so uh, I did two things uh, during the pandemic that stand out. Like when I look back and say, hey, you know, you asked that same exact question, David. If you asked me twenty years from now, um, there's the vice is, is is definitely edibles. Uh, I'm I'm on the record on that. Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised Mendoza Ferrer didn't uh, you know hit me uh, harder on that because you know when I ran for office they dredged up all this nonsense that the alt right had originally found and stuff. But the establishment, like I'm surprised they're not like, oh my god, you know he got so high once he trapped fear in a closet, right? And uh, so and uh, to be fair, I also released Bliss into the universe, uh, so. Um, anyways, uh, but so I love edibles, and uh, and so that every once in a while uh, that lifts the spirits, if you will, uh, and uh, and so I freely admit to that, and and it for me it intensifies everything, um, the senses, etc., taste most especially, and so I'm already a guy who likes to savor things, so when I'm that uh, high on edibles, I am. I, I I think there's some chance of breaking world records on Sabre. Uh, I just like literally, literally, they don't exist. They're never gonna exist. It's not a thing we can measure. But I will think that to myself, like I am not sure that anyone has ever enjoyed this salmon and cream cheese <laughs> more than I have, like ever in human history. Okay, so so that's that's pretty good. Um, and then uh, and then. But the other thing that I did that is not a vice, but that was different and strange and interesting is um, perambulate, um, ruminate, um, which makes sense since I come to root words from Rumi, um, a Turkish uh, mystic. Uh, but I walked around the neighborhood for literally hours on end, um, and or I sat on the couch for hours on end. These are things that I used to do anyway. But I did it on steroids uh, during the pandemic, and I thought about life. 
I thought about um, just every aspect, business, media, politics, but mainly like, who am I? What do I want to do? How do I want to get there? And uh, good news, David, uh, I'm here to report I solved it. <laughs> oh, good. Can you tell the rest of us what? How, how do we? How do we get there? Um, well, okay. So I'm obviously partly kidding, but the funny thing is, I'm partly serious. Uh, the actual funny thing is that I'm partly serious. But we have uh, so, to buy the book to to actually <laughs> learn the secret. Yeah. Yes, but um, we have to join your book club. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So first of all, uh, Mark, don't worry. I'm throwing in a, a chapter for free. Okay. <laughs> You're gonna get six, but all of a sudden, if you act now, I'll throw in the seventh chapter, gratis. Okay. Um, so seriously, the Justice Coming book that I'm working on, so justicecomingbook.com, that has nothing to do with any of this. Okay. Um, although it did help clarify uh, some of the political uh, thoughts that I had, and, and I think it was a really important part of that process. But no, I'm gonna write a book called The Point of Life. Uh, and it is going to sell two million copies at least. Um, so uh, you have that to look forward to, but it's going to take probably ten years. After this book writing experience, <laughs> I don't, I don't even want to look at a book for another ten years. Uh, but uh, but no, in all seriousness, I, I I figured out who I am, and then once you make up make peace with who you are, right, and you understand it, in and and furthermore, you enjoy it, uh, then you have tremendous peace of mind, and then you could actually be happy. I don't know if I'd be happy being happy, to be honest, Cenk. Yeah, no, that's the thing. A lot of people, it's in the culture actually, Mark. Um, the culture tells you not to be happy. They think it's weird if you're happy, right? And uh, and then they people try to talk you out of it. Like, Like, it's funny, when I tell people that I'm really happy now, the number one reaction is, Incredible skepticism. <laughs> like they're like, and and that's it's in the culture, right? They're like, oh, sure you are, right? <laughs> because who's really happy? Nobody, right? And then of course people don't really like to hear it because, you know, who the hell wants to hear this ass going around like, hey guys, I'm really happy. Okay, nobody wants to hear that. Um, but the only reason I say it is because it it is look we don't do any of this. This is not. TYT, there's not anything, nobody's selling anything until I sell the book 10 to 20 years from now and you'll buy a copy, it'll be fine, right? Uh, but you actually can be happy. Uh, it's not easy, right? And the material world is real. And if you gotta pay the rent, it's uh, it gets even way more real. So it's not some sort of Shangri-La BS, right? It's not like, oh, okay, you have a permanent smile on your face. No, I get pissed in traffic. I get pissed at certain things that have happened online. It, it happens, right? But you bounce back a thousand times quicker. Uh, things bother you less. Uh, and because here, I'm going to tell you the very core of it, and then we'll we'll probably move on. So the very very core of it is, once you realize that you don't have a choice but to be you, and that there's actually nothing wrong with you, that's it. That's when you feel like, oh. Why didn't anybody ever tell me that before? Uh, it turns out there's really nothing I could do about it anyway, and I'm not so bad. And and then you focus on the positive side of who you are. I I bet I could do it with you guys. I mean, you give me you know 10, 20 hours, right? And I'll get you to focus on unbelievably positive things about yourself 
and and your life. And I think you walk out thinking, I don't want to, you know what? I'm not so bad. I kind of like being me. Did this route of discovery involve therapy? I mean, because for me, and I've been in therapy for, I don't know, 25 years, whatever it is, there's a lot of sort of self-discovery that comes with that, with having your sort of own time where you can step into the things that make you happy and the things that make you sad and really live and breathe it and then make self-discoveries about yourself. Yeah, no, uh, so people have different names for what I did, right? And uh, and one is self-therapy and other is meditation, but I don't really don't think about it that way uh, in, in any of those ways. But there's nothing wrong with thinking about it that way. I just think about it as like, Oh, I had some thinking to do. So I thought for several hundred hours and I solved it. Uh, <laughs> so and so yeah, but in a sense, David, you're right. It's it's uh it's self-therapy. And what I did was like I, I kind of talked to myself. Um the Zephyr was one of the guys who works here, shot uh, a lot of the my campaign, had me mic'd all the time, right? And he said, Jang, I don't know if you know this, but you talk to yourself a lot. Okay, so I caught a lot of your conversations between you and you, uh, and uh, and I do. And I realize on the walks and when I'm sitting on the couch, I'm talking to myself, and I'm my own therapist. I think, well, okay, why do you think you're doing that? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What does that mean, right? And why do you do that? What's the core reason you do that? And then should you? And is that a part of who you are, or is that something you were taught? And uh, and I came up with my own terminology for it. There's hardware and there's software. Hardware is who you are and your DNA and your genetics. Good or bad, that's who you are. There's nothing you could do about it. And then there's software, which is the stuff that you're taught. And some of that is great and some of that is terrible. And people think there's nothing they can do about their software. That's not true. There's a lot you can do about your software. You could just strip out big portions of your coding that don't make any sense. So I can give you a super easy example. To understand, and then it gets you know harder and harder as you go. But the most common example is religion. You're, you're taught religion when you grow up. If you grow up in a even in a vaguely religious family, my family was very secular, but we were nominally Muslim, and so we believed, yay, Islam, right? And um, and then I became more religious in college, etc. I don't want to drag it on. Last thing on it is, yeah. Then I realized it's software, right? It's just something I was taught. It doesn't mean that it was right. And then when you reevaluate that software, you go, and this is what I did way back in the day, right? This is not the recent thing. Uh, I read the Quran and I was like, that's questionable coding. Um, and then I read the Bible and I was like, eh, it didn't get any better. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, you read the Old Testament, and if you still want that software, have at it, Hoss. Okay. But it's 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 not for me. I want to move on to to David's life. So uh, my Bible club is clearly out. <laughs> uh, honey, scratch it. He's not going to be interested. I'm just learning. You get three Bibles yeah. every day. You got to get a different Bible. Yeah. I can't imagine anyone more disastrous to ask to a Bible club than me. Right. <laughs> you're you're better off like like asking a random Satanist because you know some of them are good smart atheists and they're just taking on the satanist title for fun uh right most of them uh but yeah but most of them aren't going to know the bible nearly as well as i do uh and i can quote bibles with the best of them and 
And not a pretty yeah. picture. Listening to the uh, <laughs> listening to atheists who can throw the uh, you know the stars of uh, the equivalent of the martial arts stars of Bible quotes at other believers who also throw the martial arts stars of Bible quotes. That's like one of the best shows in town. You know, what I mean, <laughs> just to, to watch you guys go at it. So um, I know it'll never happen, but it would have been fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and look, I feel bad. I, I don't want to talk about it too much because I think there's such great religious folks. And uh, oh, it's and been. I mean, religion has been a, a great uh, source of of comfort for so many people through some in, through some very very difficult things. But uh, but I, I mean, I think I understand what you're saying or what you're implying, which is, which has to do with uh, uh, belief structure and and perhaps a worldview that you know is less than healthy. So. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, putting aside the the more touchy topic of of religion, honor is a perfect example of it, right? Um, and when you get, if somebody teaches you about how to be honorable, watch out. Uh, half the time, it's going to lead to, and the way that, that you really protect the honor of the family and the tribe is murder, of course. Uh, and so, uh, like, there's so much bad coding you get. Oh, these rules. Well, who came up with the rules? Oh, some guy 200 years ago or 2,000 years ago, a rabbi 2,600 years ago came up with the rabbi. What the hell would he know? <laughs> he he didn't know anything. He thought they they thought the the sky was uh, you know the stars were pinholes in in heaven and you were seeing the light from the heaven. You know why? Because they didn't because Darwin wasn't born yet and neither was Einstein or Newton or anything. We didn't know anything and so they I don't blame the rabbi either. He was like I don't know. Is it is it mainly about the foreskin? <laughs> I'm guessing foreskin. Okay, people wrote down foreskin. That's the most important thing, right? What's the second most important thing? I don't know, bacon. And they're like, which way you want to go with it? No. Everybody's like, really? No. No, we're going no. no. All right, I guess it's no. Okay. Well, the real truth about all that is that there are societal. I mean, uh, real societal um, factors that led to some of those. Right. All this stuff, but I'm oh, saying that. Uh, but but by draping it in religion and religious doctrine, you were able to get into certain societal norms that you needed to have established in order to run an, uh, a you know well-oiled machine of society, and that's uh, what religion was helpful in doing. So that's part of a different conversation. But anyway, yeah, yeah, of course, and it made sense at the time. And number one thing Muslims say is, uh, Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, actually gave. Women a lot more rights than they had at the time. So the the Quran was a very progressive document at the time, which is definitely true. It's historically true. At the same time, can we get the seventh chapter for free? Uh, <laughs> when do we get the update? Right? Do, shouldn't we update it so women have equal rights? Um, and how come none of the gods ever heard of Indonesia? <laughs> right? Right, and God bless the Indonesians. They're very Muslim. It's a big, it's the biggest Muslim country in the world, right? Yet God never mentions Southeast Asia in the in the Quran, the Bible, or any of the other texts. It's funny how he forgot it, or maybe he didn't care. But anyways, I'm getting too deep into it. If you're religious, I love you. I love your faith. Keep the faith. Lose the dogma. Um, okay. All right. So David, uh, speaking of which, how'd you grow up? Uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, what did you last uh, start with my question that's a little funny, but I like it. What did your parents do? So start us out. Wow. So um, this will sound familiar to a lot of people, I suppose, because I think there are a lot of people who grew up this way. Um, 
I grew up in uh, in the Midwest. My parents were college professors, so they were transplants from other places. My dad was from Montreal. My mom was from the New York City area. But they ended up getting their doctoral dissertations in the Midwest and getting their teaching jobs in Bloomington, Indiana. So I grew up a Hoosier, uh, a half mile from the IU campus. Uh, older brother and younger brother. I was the consummate sort of middle brother who was always trying to, uh, you know, keep everybody sort of calm uh, and keep the family sort of running. And then. Um, I just sort of felt, you know, one of the, there was a fair amount of tumult uh, when I was sort of growing up. Uh, and I like to tell people, sometimes people say, hey, how did you get in the news business? And I tell people that there was a lot of tumult between my parents uh, at a certain age, but the one thing our family always sort of calmed down and, and had a sort of reasonable discussion about was the news. We just watched the news all the time and we talked about the news. And so sometimes my own sort of psychoanalysis, as I've discovered the last several years, I think one of the reasons I went in the news business is because, well, that was something that was so comfortable both to my parents and also to our family that it felt uh, sort of safe and was something that I guess sort of got to know a lot about because I would gravitate towards things that were sort of calm and enriching and as opposed to some some of the chaos. Um, but anyway, grew up in Bloomington, Indiana. As a result, was a big IU basketball fan. Um, went to college at the University of Michigan just because I needed to get away from the IU campus. Um, and then just sort of at one point thought, oh, I'm going to be part of the, I love politics and government. I thought I'm going to be part of the diplomatic corps someday and travel around the world and be in the foreign service because I like, you know, th all things sort of international. And then I had a bad, ex not a bad experience, but I went and did an internship in Washington, D.C. one summer in college. I hated working on the Hill, um, hated the member of Congress and how they sort of treated me, the politics of it. But I was sort of intrigued and sort of watching it all. So when I went back to college and somebody said, hey, well, if you if you like Washington, why don't you see it from the perspective of a journalist? I mean, you're doing some stuff at the campus radio station. And I said, yeah, but I'm doing sports. And that has nothing to do. I said, ah, just do an internship at CNN or NBC or one of those, and maybe you'll have a good time. And so I did an internship at CNN. This would be back in 1989. And then I suddenly discovered, wow, you know, this journalism thing is, is kind of fun. And I just sort of fell into it that way. So Okay, um, I, I love I love so many parts of that story. Uh, first of all, I like that your family lives in the bizarro world. <laughs> where where there's tumult everywhere except news, which is calming. Right. <laughs> like, what when does that happen? Like where it definitely wasn't the Trump years, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, and no, back in the day when there were, you know, there were three evening newscasts. I think our family was a, a Walter Cronkite CBS family until 1981, and then a, a Dan Rather family from 81 until I went off to college. And I think my mom watched Tom Brokaw and you know, but anyway, it was just, you know, it, they were all kind of doing kind of the same stories. Uh, we would read, you know, the same newspapers, uh, the Washington Post, uh, the local Bloomington Herald Times, which took a lot of stories from the Washington Post. And so it was just, you know, there was sort of agreement on what was happening around the world. Um, the disagreement came in, well, why is it happening? And we would have endless conversations about politics and international relations and wars and, and racism and, and police and all the sort of things that would sort of bubble up. Um, none of us, you know, it was it was kind of a very sort of protected environment. Uh, I won't say that Bloomington and my you know crowd was the most diverse. Well, there were a couple African-American kids, a couple Asian-American kids, but mostly all middle class, none especially wealthy, none especially poor, um, all fairly homeless. Genius. Um, so it really took sort of getting out into the world, let's say, after college and traveling around to really sort of discover some things that I, I didn't get to see growing up. I, there's a lot I can relate to in, in your story, but I, one thing I want to make note of, it's really interesting. Uh, I'd say like a solid third of all progressives have 
parents who are teachers or professors. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you said to me, name a profession that is likely to lead to progressive children, I would definitely say teacher, right? And and I hear the same story, David, in a, in a lot of, from a lot of those folks that there was conversations around the kitchen table and it, and it wasn't just about news or politics and it wasn't indoctrination in, it was quite the opposite that it it it, it invited different thoughts and and talking through why and how uh, that led to it what what is of course in my opinion the correct answers was is that does that sound like what happened in your house you know, I would also say that it was sort of the opposite of materialism. There was no materialism in a college community. Uh, you were sort of judged in a sense by you know the the prowess of your, your ideas, your academic achievement. Uh, how much could you think? How much could you prove? Uh, how many facts could you assemble and cobble together? And so, you know, there were some kids who had bigger houses and some kids who had smaller houses. But again, the the families that really stood out, the ones that everybody admired, were the ones well. This guy has just published his 12th book as a full professor in chemistry or the business school or literature or whatever it was. And that was so there was a there was such a regard for uh, for academia and for thought and for thinking and critical thinking and science. And I think that was just sort of drilled into uh, so many of us that that I grew up with. And so, again, I think I was blessed in a way that I you know never saw incredible materiality. So never really felt felt like that that was something I needed to pursue. Never really felt like there are life's toys that I need to have. Family was incredibly important, but also academic um, rigor and digging into things and really trying to understand things and really trying to be able to explain things. And so I think, yeah, as a result, you know, coming from an academic family, uh, and I and I see this in a lot of the friends that I grew up with, who also I think landed on the same sort of political spectrum. You would think that in Southern Indiana, a very conservative part of a very conservative state, even though Bloomington sort of is this liberal oasis, that there would be at least some kids from my high school who sort of landed maybe towards the right, because Bloomington included not only the college kids, but there were kids whose families worked in town or worked in the limestone quarries, whatever it was. But I would say ninety percent. Um, Maybe, yeah, close to 90% of the kids, I'd say, and I've seen it because of all the Facebook connections that everybody has made. I mean, I've been talking with kids from high school that I didn't talk to 15 years ago because there was no Facebook, but everybody sort of come back together. And I found that the politics almost uniformly sort of lines up towards the progressive sky. I mean, they're the side, they're, you know, there are gradations here and there, but I think it's something about growing up in an environment where, for the most part, people put a value on sort of how you interact with other human beings that uh, how you achieve things sort of academically and intellectually. And, and so I think as a result, it was just different, a different mindset in some way. And in some ways naive because we didn't see uh, much of the, you know, the real world through those sort of rose colored, um, you know, college town glasses that we sort of grew up in. David, yeah. when you, you said that you went to Washington and then, you know, sort of to explore the notion of being uh, in public service or, you know, being in the foreign service. And then you said you were really turned off by it. What were the things that really rubbed you the wrong way? Well, the the irony was that um, I felt like um, interns were sort of doing you know grunt work, and here I was a political science major, and I'm working very hard at University of Michigan, and 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 I go to Washington D.C. and you know the interns are doing terrible grunt work. But the other thing about it is, is that there were no paid internships, uh, at least back then, and I needed to make some money uh, in between my sort of college years, and so I was a bit disheartening because I thought, well, I can't really afford to go back to Washington and try to work on the Hill because I, I need to make some money. So the next time I went back, it was sort of a combination of not only doing an internship in news, which also didn't pay, but I also combined that with 
I can type really fast. It was sort of one of the odd things that I learned in high school. I had a great typing teacher and I could type like 90 words a minute. And so somebody said, look, that's a way you can make money. You can be a Kelly boy or girl or whatever they call them. Uh, and you can be a temp and you can type. So I, I typed my way through living in Washington, D.C. the next time I was there while also doing an internship and thought, aha, OK, now I know how to make some money in Washington, D.C. And also sort of then became sort of fell in love with with broadcasting and journalism and the news business. Were you diminished by the people on the Hill as an intern or were you helped along? Did they give you access to things? Was there a sense that, hey, you know, I'm trying these young people volunteer their time. We have them all this dual of grunt work. You know, let's try to show them some aspects of this world that might help them beyond this place. You know, that's a good question because back in uh, late 1988, 19, 1989, I think Capitol Hill was a very different place than it certainly uh, is now. And I'd say it was more of a party atmosphere. People went to Capitol Hill to, you know, members of Congress went to party. A lot of them partied with the interns. There was all sorts of sexual peccadilloes and things that were going on that would be unheard of today. Uh, interns were having all sorts of wild parties and, you know, there wasn't a a lot of you know concern, at least at the internship level, on, on legislation. Um, and so for me, somebody who took you know the process of politics a little bit more sort of seriously, and I think I was certainly far more square uh, than the average kid who came to Washington D.C. to do an internship. I just sort of felt out of place and felt like, well, maybe my own congressman, he's a good guy, but you know some of these other people in the delegation are jerks, and their staff they could care less about you know policies or what they're doing. So it just Something about politics, just uh, at least being inside the the political bubble, I guess. It just I've just found it disheartening, um, and so you know I just felt like well, but I still love politics and still love policy, but maybe there's a different way of experiencing it. So then you went into media, and uh, and boy, do they cover it well. So that must have worked <laughs> out much well, better. Certainly, but Jen, when I was at uh, so my CNN internship turned into a job at CNN. And I worked there from 1990 to 1994. And if there was ever a sort of a glory period for CNN, the first Gulf War, there was anchor Bernie Shaw, there were correspondents John Holloman and Peter Arnett, Peter Arnett, a Pulitzer Prize winner. I mean, this was like the best sort of role models for journalism, for the news being more important than the people delivering it and doing it the right way in a cable 24 hour cycle. And it was a terrific learning ground and I had great role models and great inspiration so that when I finally decided, okay, now I wanna be a reporter myself and go pay my own dues in local news, I know what I need to aim for. Um, I would hate to have to be an intern now at any of these cable news channels looking for role models in terms of what kind of journalism to aspire to because I don't see that journalism exists. And I don't see the priority of, well, you know, we're gonna tell this story whether it gets a, a, an audience or not because it's important for the world and for your community to know about it. That doesn't exist anymore, at least at the traditional mainstream media. But it did exist when I started up and those were crucial formative years in my sort of imprint of the kind of journalism that I wanted to do. So David, I, I just, that's why I go through this because I just figured you out, right? So you were ruined by two things. One is uh, professor uh, parents who taught you the value of facts. Um, and and so uh, one of our co-founders, Dave Kohler is his, uh, both his parents are physics professors and physics doesn't care about your feelings. Uh, and so when I was growing up, you know, it was arguable who had the better facts, Republicans or Democrats. Now looking back on it, it's not, it really wasn't arguable, but I thought it was, right? Uh, th these days, um, it's not, it's no longer, we, we know which side has the facts and which doesn't. That's crystal clear, right? And uh, and then that, for those formative years, 90 to 94, where you had really good uh, role models that were journalists, uh, that, that's why you were screwed in the mainstream media. 
doing the right things, focusing on the facts, and being a good journalist. Uh, that is not cable news material. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God forbid. God forbid. These days, you should let the chips fall where they may. But that was that was what I was taught. So you know, the the, the die was cast for me, I suppose. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Indeed. I, unbelievably, we're already out of time for the first episode. The second episode, which is just as long, 45 minutes, to try to give you a big show, uh, is for the members only. That's tyt.com/slash/join. Much love. We'll see you there.